So I'd like for you to turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 1. I've actually entitled this, this message, They Began in Prayer. They Began in Prayer. I want to talk about the beginning of, of, of the church in the book of Acts. And I'm just going to look at one little phrase in Luke 1, verse 1, and then look at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, as kind of the springboard into our message today about prayer. But in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, it says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us. And I want you to look at that phrase, those things which are most surely believed among us. Those are the first things that matter to the church. The first things that should matter to everyone who is a member of the body of Christ. The first things. So, Then turn to Acts chapter 1, and let's look at verses 1 through 14, because in this particular passage, there's one verse that we're going to focus on uh, specifically, but I want to give you, kind of just lay out a a good uh, foundation for for this study. The former treatise, Have I Made, O Theophilus, and by the way, Luke is writing this, and he's writing this to the same Theophilus that he writes the Gospel of Luke to. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. And those are Jesus' words. Wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, you have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked him of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power, but you shall receive power, dunamis, you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, And a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, You men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. They returned they unto Jerusalem, or then returned they unto Jerusalem, from the mount called Olivet, which is the uh, Mount of Olives, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they were come in, they went up into the upper, an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon Zelotes, and Judas the brother of James. And verse 14, we want to uh, focus our attention upon because that's the verse... Uh, really the foundation for this message. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication 
with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. But the phrase, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. The first things that matter. In the uh, introduction to his book, Effective Prayer Life, Pastor Chuck Smith wrote a very simple but profound statement, one that rings prophetically true even some 38 years later. He said, and I quote, Today we are living in desperate times, yet the church is not desperate before God in prayer. Now listen to that again. Today we are living in desperate times. I think we'd all agree with that. Yet the church is not desperate before God in prayer. As long as we are praying, as long as we are in contact and communication with God through prayer, we're not desperate. If indeed we trust in the Lord, whom we, pray, whom we are praying to. And Chuck went on to say that prayer is the most important activity a born-again Christian can perform, heading our list of priorities for the very reason that this world around us, and, and I quote from, from Pastor Chuck, this world around us desperately needs prayer. So if we're praying, we're not desperate, but the world is desperate, and we have to pray because of the desperate need that the world has and those that are in the world without Christ. So to see the world in its chaotic and crazy condition today, knowing that the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for his church could be at any moment, with great judgment following as we know from the scriptures, it should prompt his people to get serious about those things most surely believed among us. Because the early church had to get serious about those things that were most surely believed among them. And so we must realize the importance of these things as the people entrusted as servants of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as long as you say that you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you need to be serious about the things entrusted to you. The first things entrusted to you. And one great reason that we're focusing on the issue of prayer and our need to grasp a foundational biblical understanding of prayer as was said in order in the early church is due to the fact that in these last days, as Jesus stated in his Olivet Discourse, deception would be the one primary sign of the time leading up to his return. There is a tremendous amount of deception going on in, even in the church today. I hate to say it, but it has to be said, and it has to be dealt with. And how we deal with it is that we stay in the truth of the Word of God. We stay on the truth. We stand on the truth. And it was Jesus himself in the very early uh, verses of Matthew 24 where he is speaking to his disciples about the times of the end. That he mentions four times the word deception. I would say that's pretty, 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 pretty significant. <laughs> I want to show you just two times that he mentions it in the first five verses of Matthew 24. 
In verse 1, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Twice he mentions the word deceive, and then later on, two more times. And much of what is called the church today has fallen prey to setting aside the word of God to follow the deceptions of the day. Whether through New Age spirituality, and now you know that we've talked about these things many times, so I don't want to go through a whole other, a whole other list of things, but there is a lot of New Age spirituality. I mean, this is spiritualism that the world practices, that other religions practice, but not those who believe in Jesus Christ are to practice. There's New Age spirituality, there's something called contemplative prayer that is just you know, just flooded the church today. Contemplative prayer practices, if you do a study on them, you realize that they come from some of these New Age spirituality issues and things. Labyrinths and all kinds of other things, you know, breathing exercises. Where do we see that in the scripture? Postmodern uh, ideas and, and theologies, emerging church templates, you know, we're, we we got to reimagine the church, you know, using the, the, the words, you know, reimagine, reinventing. You know, we don't need to reinvent anything. We have the word of God that is the same yesterday, today, and forever, just like Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So now you got me preaching here. And then there's issues like preterism. I've mentioned this before, but if you need a reminder, preterism is a... Is a, a uh, End-time theology or theological position or eschatological position, more, more clearly stated, that says that all Bible prophecy, and there's various levels of preterism, but all Bible prophecy, the basic understanding is that all Bible prophecy has already been fulfilled. And that's kind of crazy when you think about the fact that most of what we see is yet to happen, and it's going to happen, and we get, are getting close to it happening, but it hasn't happened yet, but they're saying it has. So that's a problem. And then there is this movement called the New Apostolic Reformation. NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation. Not the NRA, that's a different group. The NAR, but, yeah, but these, these guys are dangerous. You have to be careful about the New Apostolic Reformation because they are the ones that are saying, in effect with other groups, that the church is going to change the world. I've got to ask you, if you look at the conditions today, do you think the church can change the world without the Lord being the one that actually changes it? <laughs> no, no. We're not going to change anything. And we're going to bring about the greatest revival that's ever happened in the world. I'm just being very general here about that new apostolic reformation, but one of these days we're going to focus on it because it's important for us to understand how dangerous it is because in the church today, it's getting us away from seeing the truth about what is happening indeed in these last days. So, when you examine all of these things, they fall far short of any true and enduring biblical faith, 
and practice. But that is what is happening in the church today. Suffice it to say, and without going into any great detail, that these practices and many more will do what they can, even through demonic influence, to hinder the work of the true church of Jesus Christ in those things most surely believed among the apostles and now believed by us in the scriptures for our instruction in righteousness as we see the day of Jesus Christ approaching. So I want you to rest and depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit and the reliability and the inerrancy of the word of God to keep our focus in all of these things as we await Jesus' return. So, as I said earlier, my text for today's study then is verse 14 of Acts chapter 1. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. But the first phrase of that verse, these all continued with one accord and in prayer. The disciples had returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives where they had just witnessed the most phenomenal event. Right before their very eyes, Jesus ascended into heaven to sit again at his father's right hand. But we know that before he was taken up, he gave them instructions and a great commission. He stated to his disciples in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth and in earth. Go ye therefore... Now that's the command, that is not a suggestion. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Some of your translations may say disciple all nations. But teach is a great word because it tells us that we have something to teach. We have the word of God to teach. Teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So you go in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, which is, in fact, the authority of the, of the triune Godhead. And then he says, teach them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always. Behold this, know this, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So that meant that they were now to go do something they had never done before by themselves. But really not by themselves. Because God was going to give them the presence of his Holy Spirit. But nonetheless, they were going to do something by themselves, something they had never done that far away from their homes and families, something they had never considered doing without Jesus' physical presence. And that was carrying on the message of the good news of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, to the whole world, teaching nations and baptizing them in the name of the, and authority of the triune Godhead with one great blessing. Now, y'all like blessings? Well, this is one great blessing here, that he would be with them always, and that by his Holy Spirit. That's a great blessing. And so they were instructed not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Jesus said, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. So the Lord has promised, he has told them to wait And what are they going to do as they wait? Now after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus, Jesus told those particular disciples essentially the same thing. In Luke 24 verses 46 to 49, and keep your finger here, we'll come back to it. He said said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer. 
and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And notice in verse 49, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem, which means wait in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. So if they were going to turn the world upside down with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, or the good, good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and fulfill the Great Commission, they needed to receive the promise of the Father. They needed every resource the Lord was ready to give them. By the way, we need the same resources. We in the church today need the very same resources that were given to the disciples in the first century after the resurrection of Jesus. But now there may have been a certain apprehension, speaking of their time, a fear of the unknown, so to speak, as to the specifics of their mission. Waiting seemed to be the necessity for these disciples. And of course, the Lord knew this. He told them to wait, to tarry. But how would this power be dispensed? How would this being endued take place? Their waiting would not be in silence. It would not be in being still. The scriptures had taught them much about their need to call upon the Lord in times of confusion and in times of knowing clearly what was to be done according to his will. Going even all the way back to the book of Genesis, the disciples were aware that the Lord delighted in fellowship with his creation, especially those made in his image. It may very well be that before the fall, the Lord would walk with the man and the woman in the garden in the cool of the day in communion and fellowship. We know he did it once, but we know that he probably did it many times. But they also knew that after the fall, Abel, son of Adam and Eve, worshiped the Lord God rightly, the implication being that he prayed to the Lord in his communion with his God. And even after Abel's death and the birth of Seth, that men began to call on the name of the Lord, distinguishing themselves from others who considered themselves just children of men. You can read that if you want in Genesis 4.26. But throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, they read the prayers of the priests, they read the prayers of the prophets, and they carried within their hearts the words of their own official hymnal, the Book of Psalms. And the book of Psalms encouraged that prayer. And still it was the Lord Jesus who would teach them much concerning prayer. What they weren't to do and what they were to do. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 is a part of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. which is covered by Matthew in Matthew's chapters 5 through 7, or yes, 5 through 7. But here in chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, listen to what Jesus says about prayer. He says, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, 
For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. That's the key. It's okay to pray, you know, in the synagogue. It's okay to pray in the street as long as it's not to be seen of men. (laughs) But Jesus knew their hearts. So here's one of those areas where he says, this is not what you do. So that you do that do this to be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. What is their reward? It's the applause of men. Oh, what a holy man that is. That's it. That's their reward. But thou, you, when you pray, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, into your prayer room, into that place where you can be alone with God. Enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, which, by the way, that can be actually translated in in modern times as when you have shut the door and left your cell phone and your iPad and your other things outside of the room, when you have shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when you pray... Use not vain repetitions. There's another what not to do. Use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. You know, that's kind of seeped into the church over the last maybe 100 years or so. Maybe it was even before that in in certain movements, but it was just this constant repetition. And and of course, in, in certain... Uh, liturgical settings, you know, people praying the same prayer over and over and over again. That, that, that's counted here as well as what not to do. Because if you're much speaking, you think that God's hearing you because you keep repeating things. Be not therefore like unto them. Don't be like them. For your Father knoweth what things you have need of before you ask Him. Isn't that a great, great statement? Your Father already knows what you need. So do we still have to ask? That's the whole point. He knows what you need, so ask. So you're looking at me like I think the world would look. Uh, why should I ask if he already knows? Because there's communion in asking. There's fellowship in asking. There is that statement of faith and trust and dependency when you ask, even though you know that he already knows what you need. This is the reason why Jesus also said, Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be open unto you. Getting it? Seeking in? Uh, Seeping in? (laughs) All right. So from this he would teach them the pattern of prayer. That many call the Lord's Prayer today, but it's just a pattern. Folks, remember. Remember. We, we can pray it if you want. I mean, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But Jesus was saying, this is just the pattern. Now, this is how you can begin. Oh, Lord, who, you're our Father. I know what a joy it is to know that you are our Father. Hallowed be your name. How great is your name, Lord, above every name. And so you, it's, a, it's just a pattern to come to the Lord. But it, you can pray the prayer, but it's, 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 that's not what he meant. It's a pattern. So consider this great request 
that actually came from the disciples to the Lord in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray. Now this is a tremendous request because it is a request said in the right way. He said, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. Did you notice that the request was not, Lord, teach us how to pray? He didn't ask that. He said, Lord, teach us to pray. But Jesus was the greatest example of prayer. He never ceased to pray. Night and day, day or night, through every major crisis, through every day needs and necessities. He prayed at his baptism. He prayed at the choosing of his disciples. He prayed that Simon Peter's faith would not fail. I mentioned that last week. That Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, the devil seeks to sift you like wheat, but I'm praying for you. He prayed that Simon's Simon Peter's faith would not fail. He prayed in the garden of Gethsemane before his betrayal and even on the cross he prayed. He prayed prophetically when he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? To fulfill the scripture that that would be cried out by the Messiah. And even on the cross he prayed with compassion when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And it brings to mind what we have been studying in in John chapter 13, what Jesus wanted to teach his disciples through the act of washing feet. The lesson was the servant is not greater than his master. The servant is not greater than his master if the master prays. So must his servants pray. I can say without reservation that the Lord is not waiting for the world to turn to him in repentance. The Lord is not waiting for the leaders of our nation to seek his face. No. He is waiting for the church to get on its knees. He is waiting for the church to get on its knees humbly, yet boldly, wholeheartedly, and passionately. And this is why we need to take to heart the words of 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then shall I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. It's waiting for us to pray. Those who gathered in Jerusalem, did, they did this in this manner. If you're taking notes, listen carefully. They prayed obediently. Number one, they prayed obediently. They gathered in obedience to Christ's command. Luke chapter 18 verse 1 says, He spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not faint. 
If you find yourselves weary, if you find yourselves fainting over the things that are going on in this world or the things that you're dealing with in this life or the things that you're dealing with at work or at school or wherever you are, are you praying? Take to heart what, it just, what Luke just said. He spoke, Jesus spoke a parable unto them to this end that men ought always to pray and not faint. This is why Pastor Chuck said, when we pray, we are desperate. Because we're praying to the Father who has all the answers. And we're just seeking that wisdom and grace. We don't pray in that kind of desperation. We oftentimes do pray in desperation because we're praying, oh God, what's happening? But understand, we are to pray and not faint. That requires us to really trust the Lord when we lay down our petitions before him. Secondly, their prayer was immediate. It was immediate and, in fact, with immediacy. There was an urgency. The pace of Acts chapter 1 from verse 4 onwards is somewhat energetic. Every, everything happens at breakneck speed here. The words of Jesus were still ringing in their ears. I mean, isn't that a great challenge for us? Why is it that we as, as believers are so often put, putting things off as if we're putting God on hold? I'll, I'll get to praying sometime soon. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll get to that, that prayer meeting one of these days. But you never, you never get there. You never go if you're, you're saying, well yeah, well, I'll get there one of these days. No, there was an immediacy to the disciples and the 120 that eventually waited in that upper room in the book of Acts. There was an immediacy. We got to get there now. We got to get on our knees. We got to pray. We got to wait on the Lord. So their obedience was immediate and it was with immediacy and urgency. Thirdly, their, their obedience was joyful. And even though they were there and, and, and waiting and waiting on the Lord, they were still joyful. They had gone willing to wait as they had been told, not just out of a sense of duty. Remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus? I told you to keep your finger in Luke 24. <coughs> Excuse me. In verses 51 and 52, it says, It came to pass when he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They had come to realize that the person that was with them was Jesus himself. When we know that Jesus is among us in prayer, in this fellowship, in this communion of believers, we get excited. We are excited to think. I mean, don't, I, hope you, you, I hope you understand this perspective. When you leave this place today, after the fellowship, after communion, after the fellowship we may have with one another, Maybe even excited about going to the baptism at 4 o'clock this afternoon. Whatever it is, when you get in your car, will you be able to say, what a joy it was to meet with Jesus today. What a joy it is to have heard the word of God, to be encouraged by it. What a joy it is. I don't know about you, but sometimes, you know, we get in the car because we've got to go someplace else. Hurry, let's hurry up. Ah, get out of the way. Oh, oh, that was really nice, but it's just like, boom. It became a part of, you know, check. Okay, went to church. Yes. 
Take the time to thank Jesus today for being with us. And then don't run over anybody in the parking lot. Okay. Got it? Then they obeyed with expectant hearts. They obeyed with expectant hearts. They were full of expectancy. Do you come to church expecting great things? I do. Every time I come, I, I expect the Lord to do something great among us. It could be with one or two people that receive a blessing from the Lord, an answered prayer. You know, it's okay for you guys to share that with one another. That's, that's, that's what encourages our hearts in the body of Christ, you know. And it's encouraging to me when somebody says, you know what, we prayed for this and, and the Lord blessed. Ah, oh, praise the Lord. That's encouraging. That's encouraging. But do you come expecting? Jesus had given them the promise of sending the Holy Spirit, so they rushed to Jerusalem with joy and anticipation of receiving the Holy Spirit, their comforter. They certainly needed a lot of comfort. We need comfort today too. The Lord is going to do a whole new thing. How do we approach the Lord in prayer? Do we approach the Lord in prayer because we have to? Or because we get to? Do we realize who he is and what he can do and what he has promised? This is the very reason why in Hebrews 11 verse 6 it says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Maybe you've had a really rough week and, you know, instead of being rewarded things, you've kind of been given things that you didn't really want. Trouble, trial, whatever. Isn't it great to know that you can come together with the body of Christ and say, you know, I had a rough week, but I'm getting together this morning. I'm getting together with my brothers and sisters in Christ because I need a reward from the Lord. And it's just a blessing already to be in fellowship one with another, not to mention the blessing that we have in God's presence, in his word, in his spirit. And then they prayed constantly. They didn't just pray a prayer because they were desperate about God answering a prayer and then just getting up and saying, thank you, Lord, and then leaving. They prayed constantly. We're told in the scriptures they continued steadfastly. In other words, they persevered and engaged constantly, diligently, devotedly in prayer. They remain constantly diligent in prayer. I say that because it's the same word used in Acts chapter 6, verse 4, by the apostles to devote themselves to prayer and to the teaching of the word of God. But in our text, the disciples were learning how to hold on, to hold on, to be steadfast to hold on in prayer. It's interesting that not many days before this, when, before the cross, when Jesus took his disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane, that he told them to wait and to pray. And every time he came back to them, they were asleep. And he told them, could you not watch with me one hour? Could you not watch with me? They knew that night was... 
It was a special night, but not special like we all think it's special, you know, something really neat. And, you know, no, there was a lot of tension going on. Jesus was, was sweating drops of blood. Eventually, he was going to the cross. The lives of those apostles and disciples were going to change. Could you not watch with me one hour in prayer? So, when they gathered together in Jerusalem for the promise, they prayed. You see now why? Because they hadn't prayed before. But now Jesus was alive again. So, when he said, wait for the promise of the Father, you don't think they didn't pray? They prayed. And they stayed praying until the promise. And by the way, the last thing is that they prayed in unity. Something that the church needs to do today, but isn't finding it easy to do. They, pray, they prayed in unity. The, the, that phrase, in one accord, it's, it's the Greek word homothumadon, which means together in passion or together passionately. In that unity that they gathered together, they, they prayed in one accord. It, it, that phrase occurs 11 times in the New Testament, 10 of which appear in the book of Acts. Consider this. They were united by a common Savior. They were united by a common grace and a common salvation. They were uh, redeemed by the same blood. And now they were united by a common guest, the Spirit of God. And they were united by a common goal. What is the common goal? The Great Commission. They were united by all of these things. The fact of the matter is, we should be united by the very same things. But are we today? The one thing that we can never boast upon is our, our churches. But churches boast today. Oh, we have the most people, we have the most technology, we have the most this and the most that. Always just wanting to get people to come in. Well, what are you giving them? If you don't give them the Word of God, the greatest gift that we need, God's guidance, God's direction, God's light. Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. When I leave this place, I don't, I don't care what this place looks like. I care about what God has said to me today to go and do for the days ahead. So let us keep a prayerful attitude throughout our days, throughout your days. Keep a prayerful attitude. May these points to consider bring us to an ever-growing love for being at the feet of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, both in our individual prayer life as well as in our corporate prayer life in our churches. Let's remember to pray with pure and sincere hearts as we see the day of Jesus approaching. Let's hold fast the profession of our faith, as it says in Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. 
not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as, is, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Consider one another. That's, that's an essential part of our prayer life, considering one another to provoke unto love and to good works. That's what I hope I did to you men this morning when I, when I shared my heart about the men's retreat, provoking you unto this good work, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. It's a sad thing that people have this idea that it's how they think that matters as to whether they go to church or not. No, we're, not, we're called not to forsake the assembling of ourselves. In other words, get together and pray and exhort one another because the day of Christ is approaching. With these things, I ask you to meditate on that as we pass the bread and the cup out together. Have you hold them and wait so we can partake of them together, but consider these words today about our prayer life, about this first thing, about these things that matter in eternity, about those things which are the most surely believed among us. If you believe in the power of God, you have to believe in the act of prayer.